pray for, for your Holy Spirit to speak to each of us this morning. We pray that your presence may move among us this morning. And we just thank you for what you're going to do in this service this morning. We ask it all in your name. Amen. Thank you, Paul, for that prayer this morning. I greet you in Jesus' name, and um, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in his sight, my strength and my redeemer. I want to say a couple of things before I share this morning. One is that this message is largely about marriage. But I want to say maybe three things. One, marriage, as Russell Moore says, belongs to the church. Your marriage, my marriage, belongs to the church. And so if you are single, our marriages also belong to you. That is, you are part of this community that is responsible for safeguarding, providing accountability and support for the marriages in this congregation. For our marriages are not separate from this community that we are part of. Secondly, if you're here uh, and have been divorced, not remarried, were remarried, this message is not um, about you revisiting that. You are in the place that you are. And while I would always say that divorce, regardless of circumstance, is a breaking of covenant, which is always sin, there is a Redeemer who has loved and forgiven. And third, I would just say, as many of you know, Heidi and I, early in our marriage, were separated for almost two and a half years. And so I share as one who both empathizes with those who are struggling in marriage, Heidi and I both do, but also with the authority to say we can be victorious through Christ. Amen? We can be victorious through Christ. I'd like to read from 1 Corinthians 13, 1-7, and Philippians 2, 1-11 initially. So 1 Corinthians 13, 1-7, uh, guys on the front bench, what page number is that in the Pew Bible? 932 in the Bible in front of you, if you uh, need a Bible, and then Philippians 2 is what? Thank you, 951. So we'll go from... 1 Corinthians 13, right into Philippians 2. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Philippians 2, 1-11, this Christ who came to the cross as our model of love. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. 
Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. These passages describe for any of us in any kind of relationship that's intimate, married or unmarried, the impossible. For those of us in any relationship, those of us who are married, know that this kind of love that both Paul describes and that Jesus modeled for us is beyond our capacity. This kind of love comes only from God and by being connected to God. It comes only as God's love is deposited in our hearts. And yet it is the love that the scripture keeps calling us to offer. And that includes in our marriages. But again, it only gets into our hearts. It only becomes part of who we are and what we offer to others as we ourselves and as our marriage is connected to Christ and to the gospel. And Kate, I just want to thank you and the team this morning. Um, That was wonderful, the way you led us. Not only the singing, not only the, the songs you chose, but also the singing. People sang, Kate. I don't know where you're at, but I heard people singing this morning. And I got goosebumps as we sang it as well. And I heard you as a body singing, It is well with my soul. Only those of us who are connected to Christ have any chance of offering the kind of love that is described in 1 Corinthians 13 and Philippians 2. For it is a love that emerges from those who have died to themselves, who have given up our own selfishness, our own centeredness, who have abandoned our own projects and have taken on this one project to love one another. I have a good friend who uh, is my age, not from this area, um, who's walked through unbelievable pain in his marriage. Unbelievable pain. Married to a dear woman, but one who experienced incredible trauma as a child with parents who were part of a violent cult. She witnessed the darkest of forces and is haunted by them still. My friend understands that on the most unbearable of days, as he parents, they're a single, they're a child, and attends to the needs of his wife, that his calling is the project of love. Love that constantly believes, love that constantly hopes, love that constantly protects, love that constantly perseveres. This love depends not on my friend having his needs met. It depends not upon some mutually dividing up of household chores. It depends not on whether the dreams of this marriage ever come to fruition or not. No, through thick and thin, he understands that his calling and his one project is to love his wife and keep their marriage. Because, folks, marriage is founded upon a covenant, a covenant covenant that overrides, that supersedes, that is greater than the day-to-day realities of our marriage and certainly greater than the feelings we have about our marriage or our spouse. This covenant of marriage reflects the covenant that God has with his people that we were talking about last week, that God has with we, the church. The marriage relationship and the seriousness of that relationship were always intended to reflect the gospel. The seriousness of of our commitment to this community as part of the church, our seriousness to our commitment to our spouse, is always intended to reflect the gospel, which is always sacrificial, which is always giving up, always intended to reflect God's love 
for God's people. I'm not going to turn to it, but in the story of Hosea, those of you who may be familiar with that story, Hosea was a prophet, and he was asked by God to do the strangest of things. He was asked by God to go down to the corner and to marry a prostitute, who from the scripture seems to probably have had children of her own to other men. A godly man asked to marry a prostitute, and then she later left him and went out onto the street again, selling her body to those who would purchase her. And God comes back to Hosea and he says, go get her. Go get Gomar and bring her back to your house and love her with 1 Corinthians 13 love. Love her with gospel love. Surround her with love and care and kindness and protection and security. Take care of her, Hosea, through thick and thin. What God wanted his people to understand was this indeed covenant that he had with his people. That though he would bring judgment for their sins and failures, he was always coming after them. He was always coming after them to redeem them, to restore them. And that is not only the model of our relationship with God and God's relationship with us, it's the model of marriage. Because marriage was always intended to reflect the gospel. It was always intended to reflect God. I'm aware that much of how we see marriage has been so fully influenced by the culture around us. I'll just add a caveat that probably will get me in trouble, and I don't mean to offend anybody. Um, but I think even the movement we've made from having our weddings in church buildings to other venues is some indication of where the church's place is in marriage and the way we see the church's place. It doesn't mean you can't have a Christian wedding anywhere else, but I just wonder about the symbolism. And I wonder about how long it will take till we drop the Christian component of the wedding outside the church. Um, it's just a question I have, but I think it's not an insignificant question. The story in Hosea is the gospel at work. This is the way the gospel works. This is the way we are to approach our marriages. That mental illness, that dementia, that sickness, that tragic accidents, that unemployment, that our feelings and disappointments, that our lack of fulfillment, that a disappointing sex life, and yes, even the unfaithfulness of a spouse, even though Jesus seems to make some exception for that for divorce, even that is to break the covenant that was made before God and the witnesses of that covenant on that wedding day. That is, breaking covenant for any of those reasons is still and always will be sin because it is a breaking of covenant that is sacred before God. Because that covenant that we make on that day is a sacred thing that's separate from who we are as individuals. One of the interesting things in this chapter Russell Moore shares is that he does not permit couples he marries to create their own vows. Because he says those vows are part of the covenant that has been and always will be. They are separate from you as a couple, separate from you as individuals. They are an objective thing in God's reality. They are separate from my subjective feelings, my subjective emotions, my subjective experience. It's kind of like the Ten Commandments. They exist whether I like them or not. They exist whether I feel good about them or not. They exist whether I think they're true or not. The same is true of the marriage covenant. It exists outside of my reality. Does that make sense? And when we come together in marriage, we are connecting with a deeper and greater reality. That's part of the mystery. We are connecting with God's reality that he intended 
all along since the Garden of Eden when he said to, uh, that we should cleave, leave, and cleave. That covenant of marriage stands on its own and outside of us. When we marry, we sign up for God's expectations and God's covenant, not our own. The vows belong to the covenant God that put them in place. Because God is a covenant God, always. He asks us to commit to himself, to our spouse, and to the church. God's covenants are two-way deals. Yes, he comes to us first. He always has. He signed up with us when he sent Christ to the cross. But the question that always remains for us is, do we sign up with him? Do we make covenant with God? Not because we're going to get it all right, but because when we make covenant with God, his grace comes alongside of us. But standing outside of that covenant and refusing to make those vows and those commitments means that I am also separating myself from the strength and power that's going to enable me to keep those vows. That's going to help me to keep those vows. When I sign up for God's covenant with his people in marriage as well, I'm signing up with God's power. Covenants are not based on feelings ever, but on our commitment. I have committed myself to live with Heidi always, forever. To be faithful to Heidi alone, to love Heidi forever. Until she makes me mad or hurts my feelings? No. As long as she meets my needs and expresses love to me the way I think I need it? No. Because the covenant is not ours. The covenant we signed up to belongs to God. And that puts it on a whole new level, folks. Moore begins this chapter by describing the horrible honeymoon he and his wife had, and I wondered how many of us would have those stories too if we were honest about it. Because the honeymoon and the wedding never meet our expectations, right? I mean, they never, ever meet our expectations. It may be a wonderful time, but there's something that's always kind of disappointing that we just, because we dreamed for years about this, we spent thousands of dollars on this, and we bought into society's expectations that the honeymoon and the wedding are the high point. But I think the disappointment reminds us that probably they're the low point. They're just the beginning. They're just the beginning of all that God has for us. In so many ways, the life of marriage, and you who are married or have been married know this, in so many ways, the day-to-day life of marriage has so little to do with what happened on that wedding day and so little to do with what happened on that honeymoon. And it doesn't take long for you to figure that out. The expectations we set for our wedding and our honeymoon soon disappear into the realities of our everyday lives. Sharing a bathroom, cars that break down, dirty dishes in the sink, bills that don't get paid, and more and more. The point is that we in the church have simply too often bought into the culture's expectations for what weddings and honeymoons should look like. But the culture's expectations have so little, if anything, to do what God intended a wedding and marriage to look like. And don't get me wrong, I love weddings. I'm not talking about not having a good time at a wedding. I'm just talking about keeping in mind as we have those weddings that this is not ultimately what the marriage is about. And while that may or may not be a bad thing, adapting the culture's expectations, the problem is that the culture's expectations of weddings and honeymoons often become our expectations of the marriage as well. If we create a married, a wedding and honeymoon that's like the cultures, the likelihood is that we also expect the marriage to be what the culture says that it should be. We are taught by our culture 
that the feelings of romance, the expectations for the honeymoon are the normative things, that marriages, that good marriages continue to have them all of the time. And before long, we echo the messages of the culture. Whether we say them out loud or think them inside, I don't feel in love anymore. I don't feel excited by him or her anymore. They don't turn me on anymore. I don't feel fulfilled anymore. I don't know who they are anymore. I never did really love them, I think. I think this marriage was probably a mistake. I'm not sure this marriage was God's will for me. I just think I found my soulmate and it's not my wife. And on and on. I know this sounds a bit like the message last week of accountability and authority in order for a church to health and func function healthily. And that's true. Because I think both the church and the marriage are built upon the same foundation of commitment, of covenant, of authority and accountability. And one of the interesting things that I often say to my students is that sociologists will say, and I've said this before, that the two primary agents, institutions to socialize our children are our families and marriage and the church. Sociologists still say that. But the two social institutions that have taken the greatest beating since the 1950s are the family and the church. And that is not coincidental. Because if, if, if the enemy, if Satan can take out the church and the family, he has taken out society. And all you have to do is look around you to see that that's the case. If you think I'm fighting for the church and our families, there's good reason. Because I think everything depends on this... On the, on these two. And we've, when we've lost these two, when family, marriage, and the church have bought into the expectations of the culture, we're done. We are done. Covenant, commitment, accountability, and authority. And I know that I quickly hear sometimes, you're just being legalistic. The only reason we think commitment, covenant, accountability, and authority are legalistic is because we bought the culture. Because we bought a culture that says covenant is not necessary, commitment is not necessary, accountability is not necessary, and authority is not necessary. So if in your spirit this morning you're bristling or have bristled, just check yourself. Check yourself as to how much what you watch and what you hear has gotten inside of you and become twisted. Instead of the culture, more points us to the cross. For the Christian marriage is defined by the cross of its Lord. More says this, a marriage that reflects this good news will look like the gospel itself. Love will be defined in terms of its objective fidelity. That means I'm going to be faithful no matter what. And in terms of its subjective intimacy, yes, there is an intimate connection that can be cultivated in this marriage, no matter how different the two people are. A cross-shaped marriage, like a cross-shaped gospel, is defined, he says, by both covenant and connection. We never stop keeping covenant, and we never stop working at the connection. But connection is not possible without covenant. And so I come back to covenant. I cannot authentically connect with anyone who is not committed to me and whom I do not trust in any relationship. Marriage begins not with connection, but with covenant. The marriage is consummated after the covenant because the covenant must come first. 
Sexual consummation of a marriage before covenant is putting things backwards. Covenant comes first, and then consummation. Neither, because connections will get fractured someday, and intimacy will disappear some days. But covenant does not disappear, because covenant is God's. And this was part of my point last week about the church. If our relationships to one another are not grounded in a commitment to a common authority and to accountability, then there is also no commitment. And without commitment, there's no community. In both church and the marriage, the covenant is more important than our subjective experiences. The whole is more important than the individual. Because when the whole is healthy, individuals will thrive. When a marriage is healthy, children thrive. When a church is healthy, individuals thrive. Where the parents are united, the family is united. At the college, as I've been sharing, some decisions are being made about who keeps their jobs and who loses them. And in another round of organizational meetings this week, conversations were occurring with very high stakes for individuals uh, at the college. And yet, as I continue to repeat in church or at the college, no organization exists to employ people. The college does not exist to employ individuals as much as I value my employment. The church does not exist to keep its members happy or feeling good about themselves. The marriage doesn't exist to keep spouses happy and satisfied. No, I work at the college to fulfill the mission of educating young people that I serve. And if I've given up that mission, I should leave the college. I'm a member of this congregation to do my part in fulfilling the mission that God has given us. And I'm married to Heidi to fulfill the covenant that we made on March 5, 1988. In all of these areas, I, I, myself, as an individual, am second to the purpose, the mission, and covenant. And my feelings are second to the purpose, the mission, and covenant. Moore says this, a covenantal view of marriage would show that you are not partners keeping score on your contract agreements. But you are one flesh, committed to loving and serving each other, not because of what you get, but because you simply belong to the other. And I'll just say again, watching Richard Naomi, as Naomi was in hospice for three months dying, and watching Richard, watching Richard by her side, their covenant and the value of that covenant could easily be seen in them simply belonging together in those final moments. Moore says this, the wise path would, would be to choose a mate that one can imagine not only lying in bed on a honeymoon, but kneeling by a bedside at hospice. The wise path would be to choose a mate that you can imagine not only lying in bed with you on a honeymoon, but kneeling by your bedside at hospice. He said he once told a 25-year-old who was looking for a spouse and making all the wrong choices, you ought to be looking for a 75-year-old. Someone who you're imagining will be with you when you're 75 because they have the qualities of someone who will be with you. Such a covenantal view of the whole sweep of life, says Moore, a belonging to one another through everything is the only way to bring great joy. The mission of the whole, marriage, the church, family, must be upheld, and then everything else will work out. We as Christians should have this confidence more than anything else. Just as the college doesn't exist to employ me because it owes me a job, 
And just as I don't become a member of a church body in order to get what I want, and just because I don't, and so also I don't primarily marry to meet my needs or even to meet the needs of the other, but most of all to keep covenant. Because if I am committed to keeping the covenant that Heidi and I made 31 years ago almost, I will also care for Heidi and I will love her and I will do my part in keeping the vows. And so one question for you would be, how are you doing in your marriage at keeping covenant? Not how are you feeling about your marriage, how's your marriage going, but how is the covenant? What are you doing to support the covenant? We are working to remain true to the covenant would be a great answer. Because again, we've adapted the metrics of the culture, happiness, satisfaction, contentment, fulfillment, those are not the metrics of covenant. Covenant is about faithfulness. Covenant is about commitment. Covenant is about being true no matter what. Until death do us part. What a difference it would make at all of our institutions, in, at the college, in the church, in our marriages, if we saw our purpose first and foremost to fulfill the mission that we signed up for. Imagine that. If we were all pulling in the same direction and we were able to let the self go by in our self-interest, what a difference it would make in our marriages if we understood that our primary purpose was to keep covenant. How are we doing at keeping covenant? What's that project look like? Next week, we're going to have, two weeks, we're going to have a um, panel of single folks and three married couples talking about how they're keeping covenant with God in their single life or in their married life. And we'll get some examples. We'll hear some wonderful encouragement. And also some real, some real realness in those stories. Moore says, The church has a fundamental role in all of this. That at a wedding, the gathering witnesses are not a sign that the church is here to hold the couple, is, is, a, is a sign that the church is here to hold the couple accountable to their vows before God. Because the marriage is not just about the couple, but it's about the gospel. It's how the marriage reflects the gospel. He says, the business of marriage is the business of the church. As I was preparing to preach this morning, a, a message that I shared with a, a couple in a wedding came to me several times throughout the week. And so um, I'm going to move into that. It's a transition, but you're going, I'm not going to mention who the couple was. I've taken out any names. But it was from five or six years ago. And you're going to hear, I think, my heart reflected in this. Uh, in a practical way, as I was giving couples uh, who were marrying that day, who were signing up for the covenant, uh, counsel about doing that. Turn, if you would, to Proverbs 3, 1 to 8. And this is a relatively brief um, meditation, but um, it kept coming to me, and I, I'd like to um, share it with you. As counsel, not only for that couple, but also for all of us who are married. Proverbs 3, 1 to 8, page number... 5.12. My son, do not forget my teaching. And you could say my daughter as well. But keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. 
This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. And I'm going to be speaking as if I was speaking to that couple as I usually do. The passages you have chosen today are wonderful. Thank you for choosing them. But they are also as terrible as they are wonderful. Because the demands that they make upon us who are married are so dreadfully somber and sober. And without God, they are impossible. In contrast to the celebration of a wedding, the passages you chose bring us down to earth pretty quickly, reminding us that marriage between a man and a woman is not for the faint of heart or to be taken lightly. But the passages you chose, if you keep them in front of you, will keep you grounded through the thick and thin of the days ahead. I can hear the father of the young man in Proverbs 3 telling him in the context of his son's wedding day, Son, whatever you do, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Covenant stuff. Love and faithfulness. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Heidi and I have talked with you about the fact that you are gifts from God to each other. The word helper or helpmeet in Genesis means salvation. And without a doubt, you will save one another many times. But keeping this idea that you are gifts to one another, keeping that idea alive and genuine across the monotony and the ups and downs of the days and years ahead is another thing altogether. And that's where Proverbs 3 comes in. Because you have to nurture this marriage. You have to be intentional about caring for one another if you are going to continue seeing each other as the gifts you are. Appreciation for one another will not remain just naturally or automatically across the years. It's not natural to love one another for a lifetime. And I hear my friends who are evolutionary biologists say this all the time. We were not evolved to be monogamous. Rubbish! If you signed up to be monogamous, you better be monogamous. You have to nurture this marriage. It is not human, it is divine to love across the lifetime. And so it will take God to help you out and as I will say again, you can't do this marriage thing without God. He is consecrating your marriage today and it will require your keeping him in the center of that marriage if you are to have any chance of success. This means participating in a church that supports your marriage, having friends who affirm your spouse rather than tear them down, spending time together in prayer on a regular basis, and doing whatever you can to nurture God's presence in your life together. And so the father says to his son, Son, don't you ever let go of love and faithfulness to your wife. And the mother says to her daughter, Daughter, don't you ever let go of love and faithfulness to your husband. It is clear these parents understand the covenant thing, that hanging on to love and faithfulness won't just happen without effort and intentionality. Otherwise, they wouldn't say, let them never leave you. You see, it's up to us, it's up to you as to whether love and faithfulness ever walk out the door of your house or remain with you forever. You will never be able to blame anyone else other than yourselves if love and faithfulness abandon you. In the world we live in, the cultural forces are against covenant, against love and faithfulness in your marriage. And quite frankly, the forces of hell are against them too. The fabric of our society and of our families is being torn apart because of couples who let love and faithfulness or covenant walk out the door. And the fact that you are standing here today saying, I do, is no guarantee that it won't happen to you either. And Heidi and I often say that to couples. The fact that you are standing here today saying, I do, is no guarantee that it won't happen to you either. There are many couples just like you with good intentions who have stood where you stand today. One or both of them, however, have let go of love and faithfulness. 
And for this reason, the author of Proverbs says not only to hang on to love and faithfulness, but to bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. In other words, if you must, half choke yourselves to death with the noose of love and faithfulness around your necks. If that's what it takes to remind you of how precious they are, better to go around half breathing but clutching love and faithfulness than to breathe great gulps of fresh air that no longer includes this one God gave you by your side. Better to die an early death with love and faithfulness still clinging to you than to live a long life having abandoned love and faithfulness halfway through the marathon. And then the author goes even further saying to his son, as it were, rip out your heart and write love and faithfulness on them. Because if you don't do it, the loss of love and faithfulness will eventually tear your heart out anyway. Better to walk around with your heart half hanging out of your chest, but with words love and faithfulness on them, than to have your heart intact, but to lose the whole world and the ones you love because of your unfaithfulness. The author of Proverbs is making it pretty simple. There isn't nothing except love and faithfulness when it comes to giving your marriage a chance against the forces of hell and the culture we live in. And there isn't anything but God or anyone but God who can help you keep love and faithfulness. With love and faithfulness, you can be rich and make it just fine. With love and faithfulness, you can be poor and have a party anyway. With love and faithfulness, you can be healthy and enjoy life together. And with love and faithfulness, you can be sick as a dog, but still know you're married to your best friend ever. With love and faithfulness, you can have a great sex life and be happy. But with love and faithfulness, you can also have a lousy sex life or no sex life and be madly in love. With love and faithfulness, you can grow old and lovely and passionate about each other. Or with love and faithfulness, you can grow old and ugly and be even more in love than you are today. Because that's what love and faithfulness does. Love and faithfulness warps our perspective in wonderful ways. Love and faithfulness warps our perspective God's way. Love and faithfulness causes us to see the other the way God sees them. The way they truly are. Lovely regardless of the warts. Lovely regardless of the uglies. Lovely regardless of the disappointment. Lovely regardless of the gray hair. Lovely regardless of the wrinkles. Lovely regardless of the weight gain. Lovely, lovely, lovely. With love and faithfulness by your side, your love for one another will be warped just like God's love is warped towards us. That same love which St. Paul says caused Jesus to come from heaven to us on earth to redeem sinners that we were. And in the same way, though, throwing love and faithfulness out the door or giving up covenant in the language of this morning means that you or your perspective will also be warped. When we give up love and faithfulness to one another, our perspective is warped Satan's direction. If you abandon love and faithfulness for one another, you will begin to see your spouse in ways that aren't really true at all. You will become dissatisfied with your marriage and one another. You will begin to look around at others innocently at first and wonder what life with them would be like. You will begin to believe that you deserve better than what you have, that you deserve to be happier than you are, that the two of you are really too different to live together anymore, and on and on. And I want to say this as clearly as I can. It's a bunch of hogwash, and those thoughts or feelings are surefire signs that you're starting to let go of love and faithfulness. And in those moments, it is in your best interest, if you care about yourself at all, to grab love and faithfulness once again and to do whatever it is necessary not to let them slip through your fingers. Because it's not an exaggeration to say that your life depends on clinging to love and faithfulness. Heidi and I have talked with you about the importance of spending time together, 
of developing predictable rituals that bring you back together day after day. An indicator of love and faithfulness leaving your property and the property of your house is when you stop spending time together. And so I just ask you, even as couples, what's the time like between the two of you as a metric of what love and faithfulness is like for you? At those moments when you sense love and faithfulness going out the door, it's high time to drop what you're doing tonight and to go out for dinner. Or, I planned a weekend away, let's clear our schedules. Or, let's go to Aruba, or the Bahamas, or Mexico, or who cares where as long as you're doing it together. In those moments, and I just want to say this as loudly as I can, clearly as I can, in those moments when you sense love and faithfulness leaving your marriage, the cost of salvaging it will be a whole lot cheaper than the cost of letting it go. Salvaging your marriage is going to be a whole lot cheaper than letting it go. And I mean cheaper at every level. It's not easy to hang on to love and faithfulness, but you can do it. Because when you make covenant with God, the mysterious thing at the cross is the forces of heaven are joining up with you. And it will be so worthwhile on the day when it matters most and you come face to face with your God who says, my son, how did you do with the covenant? My daughter, how did you do with the covenant? The legacy of love and faithfulness is the favor of God and of man and a good name. Just as letting go of love and faithfulness brings the loss of such favor and the destruction of a good name. Love and faithfulness is worth, and I just want to say this again, whatever it's going to cost you to keep them wrapped around your marriage and imprinted on your hearts. Nothing else is as valuable or will reward you as much just as nothing will punish you or inflict more pain than if you let go of love and faithfulness. God, you are a covenant God who invites us into the gospel, who invites us into the gospel story where we are forgiven and redeemed and made whole. And we come as broken people, we come as dysfunctional people, we come as single people, we come as married people, we come as formerly married people. We come and say to you that we hear your word this morning. We hear your word and we know that the pathway to life is covenant with you and covenant with one another. We know that the pathway to life is love and faithfulness. We also acknowledge that we can't walk that path without you. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that in this moment this morning, you would come upon us, upon us as individuals, upon our marriages, upon our church, to empower us to live with love and faithfulness before you all the days of our lives. And I thank you for the generations who've gone before us, who've walked with love and faithfulness. And I thank you for the generations who will come after us and come after the the couples in this congregation, the families in this congregation, because they have chosen love and faithfulness. And so by your Spirit, enable us to live the covenant life of marriage and of church and life with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I close and we have the response song, I just want to remind you on behalf of Heidi that there are two weeks till the marathon Sunday. And just clear up a couple of maybe misunderstandings. This is not a race. We will not be running a 5K. You could, maybe next year, Ron. But it's not a literal 5K. Um, but we're, it's a metaphor for uh, a race. Um, it is for those who are post-high and older. If you graduate from high school, jump in. A celebration of our milestones in marriage, and so this is the number of years we've been married, or if you're single, another milestone, perhaps how long you've walked with God. We want everyone to feel part of what's happening that day. 
We're encouraging you to decorate these with whatever number and symbols are important to you and to wear them in two weeks to church uh, for that marriage um, and single marathon journey. Um, We will have a panel of eight persons, I've already mentioned that, share their stories of God's faithfulness. It will be a Sunday to celebrate God's faithfulness uh, and our covenant God. And I will be in the foyer after church distributing cards and twines, ribbon, if you did not get them last week. So you've got two weeks um, to put your milestone card together, your marathon card together, and we're looking forward to that day. Thank you. Lord, I need you. 
going to invite the folks who are going to Gator Camp this week to come forward. We're going to have a commissioning for them, those who are here this morning. Every year, Paul Swanger has been organizing for the last, is this three, three years, Paul? Third year? Um, a group to go down to Gator Wilderness Camp, where, uh, which is the camp that my brother Greg leads. And so uh, there's a group going down uh, this week of seven, I believe. Um, Sue's not here this morning, but Sue is also going. And so um, I just want to say a couple of things. One, um, we acknowledge this morning and praying for you that you're making a sacrifice. I mean, I know it's a little warmer in Florida, but that's, that's, uh, you've still got to work with my brother. And so, you know, uh, <laughs> God bless him. I love him. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, but you really are. The, I mean, there's work you're doing, um, and you'll have a good time together, but I know you're letting some things behind, and that means always doing a lot of work in preparation. And when you come back, there's work that's been left for you. And so we're just acknowledging that you are um, you're being obedient to Christ. And, and for a bigger context for this is not just the trip to Florida, but I just want to remind you of Matthew 25, that um, Jesus is talking to those on his right, and he said, Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to me. And they looked at him and said, when did we do that? And he said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And your ministry this week is to the least of these. Uh, it really is, and you know that. And, um, and so I just want to say, you're building an inheritance. This is a, there's a bigger thing happening here. Your obedience is part of the inheritance. Um, and so Jesus said to them, um, come on in. Um, and uh, whatever you did to one of the least of these, you did to me. And so I just want to pray for you and pray for your ministry this week and pray for protection over you um, and the Lord would do in your hearts and lives and in the camp through you what he wants to do. And I'd ask you if you could stand, and this is going to be our benediction, if we could stand together with your hands extended towards this team and remember them this week. When are you leaving, Paul? Today? Later today they're leaving, and so we want to keep them in prayer. And um, also, um, Kate will have a benediction, response. Benedict, closing song, and you're welcome to be dismissed as, you, uh, as that song goes. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you're doing at um, Gator Camp, and we thank you for how it's part of your kingdom purposes. Thank you for my brother's vision and a sense of call there, and just for the way you've prospered that. And I thank you for this congregation and how it's connected to that vision as well. And I thank you for um, this team that is taking a week um, to travel. We ask for your safety upon them. We ask for your joy to go with them. We know that when we go on mission with you, you give us joy. You've said that over and over again. You give us authority. You give us the power we need. We, you give us your spirit. And so we just say that upon this group, as they travel and as they work and as they return home, there is your joy, there is your authority, and there is your spirit. And so I just pray for uh, the peace of Christ that they are taking um, to these boys in this camp would also rest upon them throughout the entire week, that there would just be a recognition, awareness of your love and your presence and your care, and that they would see you doing immeasurably more than they can think or imagine, even as they prepare for this trip. And so I thank you that they go on behalf of us, and we send them on behalf of your mission of this congregation, and bless them in Jesus' name. And as we go ourselves, we go on behalf of the mission of this congregation, the mission that we've signed up for to um, know you, to experience, uh, to nurture relationships, and experience your transformation in this community and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessings, thank you, and go in his peace.